And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Pastor John Vance. And Pastor Vance, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Well, again, it's my privilege, and I'm delighted to be with you today, Dan. Now, uh, just for the sake of our listeners, um, you are now living in West Virginia. I think most of them know that. But uh, you used to pastor the church in Rock Tavern, New York, Westminster Presbyterian Church. And you're now, quote-unquote, retired, but my hunch is that you're staying very busy. Well, I do. I live on a mountaintop. Uh, Not a high mountain. I think we're about 3,000 feet. (laughs) But... uh, the uh it takes a lot to keep up the situation with wood and uh the road and that sort of thing but i also uh do supply preaching when i ask and i teach a regular sunday school class that keeps me busy oh i can imagine well you're a precious member of our board here at redeemer and kind of help keep us on track Today we're going to be talking about kind of a mix of items, and um, we have quite a state of affairs here <laughs> going on in America. Um, now and then I see a posting online where somebody puts a picture of America back in the 50s, kind of an older looking picture, maybe a church in the center of town, and a gas station, kids riding their bikes. And uh, there is something endearing about that. And as I thought about it, I thought, well, probably one of the things that was more evident back then was simply a Christian way of living. Not that everybody was a Christian, but uh, it kind of was the assumption, kind of at the base of the way people lived. They kind of had a sense of right and wrong. But anyway, just to get us started... Um, what a state of affairs we have today, and we'll probably touch on many things, but can you um, kind of form our thinking now as we talk about this? Uh, I have a book. It's called A Panoramic View of the Protestant Churches in America in the 50s, and uh, I have leafed through that a number of times to see the nostalgic pictures of churches and clean-cut people going to church. They're actual actual, uh pictures, they're not just drawings, Uh, people stepping out of the church and going down the steps with their children, families were more intact for sure, even uh, in the minority communities, uh, families were much more intact, Uh, and uh, church was much more prominent. In fact, church membership reached its high point in the 50s under the Eisenhower administration. But world wars uh, changed things. we had World War One, the war to end all wars. We had World War Two, of course, to fight uh, fascism and Nazism. But uh, it wasn't long that uh, uh, in the uh, that became its real fruit, uh, revolutionary fruit in uh, wars cause. It caused revolutions internally in people's minds and way of looking at the world. Uh, in the sixties, you begin to unfold, and we've been living out. Uh, this sort of thing ever since. The 60 generations has marked us, and, and we're living with uh, the children of the children of the 60 generation, uh, and we have a different world. Yeah, there's no question about that. I was uh, fairly young 
in the 60s, um, but someone was talking about uh, the price of gas back in the 60s. And I I go back as far as, I think I remember it being 29 cents a gallon, 29.9, I believe, in a little gas station in Glenford, New York. But I know it was even lower than that um, earlier. Well, I'm older. I can remember 14 cents. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I was in uh, school in the, in the 50s uh, and grew up in it and was very, very aware of politics as a youngster, even though I Were was you really? a Christian at that time. Oh, yeah. I, wow. I watched. I hate to date myself here, but uh, I watched uh, every bit of the Democratic National Convention and the uh, Republican National Convention of 1952. Oh my goodness! You were so much into that, much more than myself. It took me. Oh, yeah, uh, I was a kid, and I was wow. glued. I was glued. I was a kid. That's remarkable. I, I I just didn't have a clue when I was growing. You know, I I was I finally found my uh, niche kind of with ham radio in high school, and and the technical world kind of kept me in a. Per- particular line of thinking and that kind of kept us out of trouble but you know the fact that the lord saved me called me to himself in the in the 70s i think it was 71 and then i had a couple years left of high school but going that technical route turned out to be a blessing from not getting exposed to all this craziness that was going on even back then but um yeah the lord is gracious um tell us about your life growing up um while we're talking about state of well, affairs, I, I up, I, yeah, I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, which was a very dynamic place when I grew up. Uh, it's, it's the capital, of course, of West Virginia. It's a nice small city, very dynamic city. It was when I was growing up, uh, very middle class. We had uh, a lot of very educated people that worked at the Carbide. Uh, they had a big tech center, uh, over 4,000 or 5,000 scientists worked there. And so our high schools were very competitive with those, uh, children of the scientists. Uh, anyway, it was, it was, I remember the, the, uh, it was the halcyon days, the, the days of, uh, of great growth in America and unity. Uh, and it's true that what Francis Schaeffer said about the fifties, uh, there was a general consensus. While everyone was certainly not Christian, uh, the the truth was that everybody was pretty much on the same page. Right. We had a true Christian culture working, and he called it the Christian consensus. And so, right and wrong to begin with uh, was pretty much understood by everyone. What was right and what was wrong, and that made for. Uh, a very important period in our country where we're succeeding like crazy in every field of study and so forth. America was coming, had come into its own, and it was the apex of our culture, really. Uh, C.S. Lewis says something very important. He says that the the key to the universe is uh, right and wrong. And uh, today, uh, we are not on the same page about right and wrong. And of course, look where we are culturally. Yeah politically, and every other way. Well, um, I've heard it before that um, those who push cultural Marxism, um, they they try to split people. They want to divide people, and that's how they win. That's one of the ways they win, one of their tactics. Um, Compared to 
uh, the Christian worldview, which brings people together, it doesn't divide, contrary, <laughs> contrary to their lies. Um, but, um, yeah, so it was a different world, um, and yet um, we still have the same God, and he's seeking and saving, calling people to himself. Um, I I know there's a lot of um, duress right now, but um, how do you... Let me ask you this: How how does a person keep keep positive and and not get depressed over all this that's going on in our world right now? Well, we are divided because uh, just a little sketch. The '60s generation got enamored with uh, with Marxism uh, to some extent. Her- Herbert Marcuse, yes, uh, a, a German. A philosopher who came to America, his works were quite popular, and he was introducing, of course, Marxism uh, to the U.S., and a lot of the baby boomers uh, got into that. They really didn't know altogether. They just felt rebellious, but they were buying into Marxism. Cultural Marxism entered uh, the U.S. at that point. It was very, very uh, isolated and not too threatening because we still were living off the, the cultural inheritance of the 50s. But uh, as time went on, uh, this cultural Marxism uh, infiltrated itself into every area of life. When I say cultural Marxism, uh, I mean uh, the the idea that you must uh, have conflict in society to have a revolution. And, of course, we have had conflict uh, uh, in our life. Particularly today, we have terrible conflict uh, uh, at every level. But uh, I remember a man by the name of Derek Bell. Derek Bell was a professor at Harvard in law, and he and his students uh, interjected uh, Marxist thinking into law, uh, particularly in the African-American studies uh, program there in the law school. And uh, that little beginning uh, in the early 80s spread to the schools in the late 80s, and uh, one thing we have lost uh, through this over time since the late 80s and 90s is that we have lost the higher education and education in general. Mm. Uh, we have people who are running our universities who no longer uh, 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 even want a Christian worldview um, or a traditional worldview. Uh, they, they do uh, promote this at every level, these diversity programs that they have are extremely destructive, and uh, they're rooted in lies because uh, they deny the actual history of America and are trying to substitute another history, uh, and, and they pit people against people. Yeah. Uh, rather than just class warfare, it's become uh, uh, race warfare. Uh, any kind of uh, conflict that they can Correct. introduce, they do, and they are succeeding. Uh, and in our public schools, we are in a mess, of course, because of this. Some states are making some gains. I see where Iowa now has passed a law that the money in Iowa for education will follow the student and not the institutions. That's neat. Which is a great, a great uh, step forward. And of course, in Florida, they're they're scrutinizing the the curricula uh, closely. And uh, uh, they're doing a good job. But uh, the truth is, in most places, our public schools are being run uh, by the unions, and they're destroying uh, our, our, our educational system. They're indoctrinating and not educating. So that's oh, yeah. where we are. But you say, well, what can you do about that? Well, you know, it's tough when you've got 
government elites who uh, espouse some of this stuff, and you've got our cultural elites who espouse some of this stuff, and you have such a pervasive uh, uh, impact uh, from uh, uh, cultural Marxism. Uh, what what do the Christians do? Well, you know, I've thought a lot about that as a pastor because you know when you're a pastor, you have to you have to uh, uh, think about these things and and gear your sermons to prepare yeah. your people. Um, but I do think that we have to get back to a traditional understanding of the church and worship. Uh, uh, you sent me a video, and the fellow talked about seeker-sensitive churches. Uh, seeker-sensitive churches, and I know many of our listeners will be in seeker-sensitive churches, and in some ways you do try to reach out and evangelize in many in various ways. We have examples. But when you start making the the raising on debtor or the reason for being for the church to seek uh, the heathen, so to speak, but you assume their assumptions and you reach out and tailor things for their tastes, uh, you are dumbing down the church. Yeah. And a, 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 a traditional understanding has been handed down through the centuries of the church is very important. And I think also traditional worship has an educational benefit far beyond what you may think. You know, a church is not entertainment. We come there to worship God in forms that are suitable to him according to the scriptures uh, and to ascribe that glory which is due his name. And, and we go there to participate, not just to become an audience, right. you know, when, when we go to church. Worship is not a, a, a spectator sport. Worship is where you're a participator. You actively engage in worship through uh, prayers and hymns and and I say hymns because uh, they carry a great doctrinal weight and Christian truth, yeah. Uh, so forth. So I, I think that you start right there, Dan. Honestly, and and if I can just maybe say a couple more things before I stop. Uh, the school situation is as such that I think Christian parents are going to have to think uh, of getting their kids out of public schools where. Uh, the schools have been so damaged and are running uh, wild with uh, delusional thinking that there's no, there's no hope in saving it as such. And I think uh, people who have money who are Christians are going to have to set up uh, funds to help out with this with for uh, people who are unable to accomplish it themselves. Now, mm. I, I, in some places, maybe the public schools will be fine. I can think of places where they are, but in most places, and in our, particularly in our big cities, I think the ball game is over, and Christians are going to have to think in a different direction about those things. So, uh, those are just some thoughts off the top of my head. Yeah, no, those are good thoughts. I um, saw a posting the other day. It was contrasting um, Chinese students in the third grade was the claim they were learning calculus, whereas our kids are having some kind of gender studies and questioning who they are and all kinds of perversion. Um, that's definitely how to destroy a culture. Um, today we're talking with Dr. John Vance, and uh, he's a friend of mine, friend of the ministry. He's a he's a director here at Redeemer Broadcasting. He advises us, helps keep us on track, and I. Uh, we look to him for great wisdom um, here at the ministry. Uh, Pastor was how many years were you uh, 
actively pastoring a church Sunday to Sunday. How many years was that was that total, uh, Pastor Vance? Uh, in St. Louis, uh, or I was a student in St. Louis at Concordia Seminary for a brief time. I went to Covenant and Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Um, I pastored a church, uh, a congregational church in Woodburn, Illinois, for a year, and uh, as a student, actually a year and a half. And then I, I was called. Uh, they knew I would when I graduated. I would be moving on. So I, I uh, it was a small church. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, we, we grew, we doubled in size in, in a year. It's amazing. Mm. And uh, they called me full-time, but that by that time, I, unbeknownst to them, I'd accepted a call to another church. So I went to Newburgh, New York. Wow. Uh, inner City Church, and I was there for, uh, we, we didn't stay in that location, but um, I was there for 40 years. <laughs> It's a it's a long period of service, and uh, my hat is off to any pastor that stays with the stuff that long. It's uh, it can be grueling at times. I think the hardest part is when people that you love and have trained and warmed up to um, sin against God and and then betray you. <laughs> I don't know any particular cases. I'm just saying in general, uh, it's got to be very hard on a pastor. Um, going through some of these things. Um, We're talking about the state of affairs in America. Um, We started off uh, reminiscing, if you will, about the 50s and 60s. And um, some of you folks that are listening grew up then. Um, Others, you're quite a bit younger and you probably don't have any (laughs) memory other than what you read or see a video of. But um, things are kind of a mess. Uh, Some of our leaders, as they say, have made a hash of things, and it's not getting any better right now. But um, this point that you made of the importance of worship, getting together physically, in person, with God's people on the Lord's Day and other assembly times to worship God, to pray together, to learn about Him— um, is so essential in terms of a hope, a future hope for our country. And uh, I guess that raises the point, too, of the fact that we need free, we must uh, maintain freedom of worship, uh, not just thinking about God in your heart, uh, in your closet, but actual public worship. And and uh, that that's very important, um, I would say, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, a few years ago, I, I won't name names, but one politician in particular kept calling what we have in the Constitution freedom of religion as freedom of worship. Now, what she had in mind <laughs> yeah. was uh, that you would only worship God in your side, your church, yes. uh, and you would not have any religious activities outside. Oh, good point. Well, uh, 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 under the uh, rubric of religion, it includes a whole way of life, and one of them is worship. Now, while worship is so important, it keeps you rooted in deep reality. Uh, every other kind of worship that's not rooted in deep reality in God through Jesus Christ, uh, in particular, uh, is is idolatry according to John Calvin, and I think he's right. Uh, yeah. y- y- you you are rooted in unreality. So 
what worship does, it gives you an orientation toward truth. It also opens you up because, you know, the Church, and let's let me say a little more about the Church. The Church is called the ground and pillar of truth in the Scriptures, is it not? Right. And and uh, you, we need doctrine today. I, I've, I'm attending a ch- uh, two or three churches. There are no real uh, churches around here, but mainline churches in this area. And so I've attended some and preached at them. But what I've noticed is an absolute dearth of doctrine. They are just simply not taught. They're taught some piety, uh, but it doesn't carry over into their way of thinking in politics or living or any way of life. It, uh, it's just a religion becomes a feeling. But you need doctrine to actually, uh, just as a train needs rails, yeah. so do we need rails uh, as we go through life. And, and uh, uh, doctrine is very important. And accountability, discipline. We need a church that actually practices some discipline, for we are uh, wayward creatures and need accountability. So yes. a strong view of the church in our delusional and uh, uh, day where the wind blows in each direction and people are just blown like chaff, you need an anchor. The church is one of the symbols of the church is an anchor. Mm. And so the church anchors you. Um, let me just say something that might shock some people, but I have a very strong view of the church, and one reason is I, I, I'm, I, I'm a historian of theology by training, mm-hmm. as well as a pastor. And uh, in the early church, there was a phrase called extra ecclesium non salutis. What does that Latin phrase mean? It means that outside the church, there's no salvation. Mm. Now, in one sense, that's a little strong, because obviously uh, there are people who are poorly taught who are true believers, uh, sure. and so forth. But in the main, that is a very good rubric to right. follow. Right, And particular today, and so I would say to you out there who are listening, uh, you know, uh, a Zoom is not a substitute for church. And I know we had to go through it, but, you know, that time is kind of over. <laughs> uh, we, we can assemble uh, freely now, regardless of your politics and how you view uh, the epidemiology aspect of this. But uh, and, and sitting at home uh, uh, on the Lord's Day, you know, I've, I've learned, I'm praying a prayer now, and I'm going to give it to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against your church and your day. Hmm. Uh, it's one of my confessions. I have sinned against your church in your day, and then I pray for the persecuted church around the world mm. because I failed to pray and support the church the way I should. But also the day. Uh, the day is a very important it day, is. the Lord's Day. It is. And and I, I hope people will begin to take that seriously again. The real mark of a Christian in the early church was the day they worshipped on it was different than all the other days yeah. of the week, and uh, it was a witness in itself. Yes. So, well, these are these are wonderful things to contemplate. I just happened to look at the time, and I realized, wow, that sure went quick. We're almost out of time. We got two minutes left uh, today. We've had the privilege of talking with Pastor John Vance. You know, Pastor Vance, I looked up a Bible verse while we were talking earlier, um, pondering a education and the need for a Christian education. 
basically is what comes out of that. And uh, there is a wonderful verse from Colossians 2.3. It says, In whom, it's talking about Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's a, it's a wonderful truth of Scripture, and uh, I hope we can get it as a foundation for our lives, that on Christ, <laughs> the rock, our king, we can also add, uh, are hidden all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, why don't you take the last minute and just give us some wrap-up thoughts? Well, that, that is a great thought that you presented there, and very important. Uh, I wrote a Christmas letter. I sent it out. I don't know whether I sent you one or not, Dad. I think I did. Uh, but I write a Christmas letter every year, and the first half is just catching people up with our family, what's going on. We had a new grandson born. I'm, I'm delighted. I'm a real old grandfather for this son. <laughs> I'll never see him grow up. I might see him get to 10 years of age. Um <laughs> The, the, uh, but the second half of the letter has to do with Christmas, and I talked about light coming into the world, and it is in the light of Christ that we see ourselves. But kind of a play on C.S. Lewis, I said it's also by that light that we see everything else. Mm, yeah. And um, that's what worship does for us. It helps us in Christ to see everything else. The Church helps us to see everything else. And it is Christ, who's a great head and king of the church, whose light pervades that. And even into the world where the, where the church is weak or not, uh, Christ is still there. Praise God. Yes. And, and uh, that light uh, is, is the only thing we have that keeps us from utter destruction. Mm. So you are right to mention that verse. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Pastor John Vance. And... Dear listener, if you have a question for us, a quick reminder that our email address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. I'd be very happy to forward your inquiry to Pastor Vance. And um, Pastor Vance, may God bless you and keep you, and I hope you have many, many more years to advance the claims of Jesus Christ and serve Him. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.